to read slow and pray long because we only have two verses today. So I appreciate you guys uh, praying for us this morning. If, uh, if you Google, if you got on your phone right now or later today, if you Google picture of Matthew 7, 13 and 14, or if you Googled uh, the words picture of narrow and wide gate, you'll get anything from fiery uh, uh, water paintings to early 90s clip art, okay? So uh, you might not be f- familiar with uh, water paintings, but the cheesy clip art, there's plenty of that on Google for this verse, I guarantee you, if you were to Google it. But this is one of the pictures that comes up. Let's see if uh, so we can get to come up here. This is uh, a late 1800s uh, water picture, water painting of Matthew 7, 13, and 14, and it depicts what we often think when we hear this scripture about a uh, narrow gate and a wide gate. And if you were to pull up this picture and look at it by yourself, you will see that on the, on the right-hand side, so my left, your right, is a very small, narrow, small gate right along this little brick fence here. And it, once you follow that path, you see pictures of people practicing self-discipline. You see... Uh, a church. So we're going to assume church attendance is on that narrow path. And you see people who are singing and you see people who are listening to sermons, and which it's important to note that Jesus is going to say the narrow path is a hard way. So admittedly, if you're in here this morning, you're doing something hard listening to a sermon, according to this painting here. And everyone said, Amen. And at the top of this painting is a celestial city with a mountain that with a mountain that goes all the way to the top, and it's presumably a picture of heaven and of eternal life. And then if you look on my right, your left, you'll see a big banner that says welcome, and it's a wide gate with three people walking through. And there's a man waving a flag that says worldliness, because you've never seen a flag before until you see a flag with the word worldliness embroidered on it. I don't care what beach you go to in Texas, you've never seen a flag like one that says worldliness. And underneath that flag, if you look at the picture, are people dancing. And you might not be able to see it here, but it has a little banner. It says ballroom. So apparently, in the late 1800s, these people had not met Cardi B, okay? So this was ballroom dancing equates to worldliness. And we're to interpret that. And across from that is a movie theater. Now, I pray God bring back Palladium or Regal 22, whatever you call it. But according to this picture, worldliness. And down from there is a gambling house and a lottery sign. So your draft kings is shot. And there's some people drinking alcohol. So your trips to Fredericksburg are done. So traveling, and if you look even further up, there's a, there's a train at the, the very height before you get to hell. And so traveling, presumably on a Sunday, to go to your kids' Little League games is worldliness. And at the very top is a fiery depiction of hell and destruction. And so that's often how we think when we come to Matthew 7 and 13. We have this grid of something similar to this picture. And we assume that the wide road on this side is the way of the world. And the narrow road on this side is the way of Jesus. And I want to submit to you this morning, that interpretation is only maybe halfway correct. I want to submit to you this morning that what this passage means once we look at it within context is actually something very different 
than the way we might assume it to mean. And I promise you, I promise you that if you get what this passage is saying, there's so much more freedom on the other side of these two little verses. It will deeply change your life. So before we pick apart this, these two verses, I want to get a little sense of where we are. If you look in your Bible or if you look um, uh, on, on the screen, Matthew seven twelve, Jesus is wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, okay? And he's just given a concluding statement in Matthew seven twelve. He says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's what we call the golden rule or the second greatest commandment, okay? And now what Jesus is going to do, if you, you, it's typical preacher language. He says, so, whatever, and then he continues preaching, okay? So you, you've, you've got Jesus makes a concluding statement, and then he's going to give a warning, and he's going to do it four different times with four different pictures. Same warning, four different pictures, and the first picture is here in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, where we see two gates, okay? And if you skim down to verse 15, maybe you have a little subtitle. It'll say a tree and its fruit. Verses 15 to 20 is two trees, okay? And then if in my Bible, I have to flip the page over, and once you get over to Matthew 7, verse 21, you see uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so there's, there's two claims that are made here, and judgment follows. And then finally, once you get to Matthew 7, 24, Jesus gives a little image of building your house on the rock. So there's two builders. So you've got two gates, two trees, two claims, two builders. Jesus isn't randomly, hmm, what would be a good illustration here? Uh, I know, a fig tree, uh, a gate. Jesus is actually doing a lot more if we were to step back and look at the picture, and I'll tell you why I know this. Um, when I was in high school, my dad, maybe he's watching now, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure I'll hear about this later. Uh, when I was in high school, at 6.30 in the morning, my dad would come into my room and knock, 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 and sing this. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. And you talk about how to turn off a 16-year-old to God. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear that. Let me sleep in. Let me sleep in. And um, why do I say that? Because Psalm 18, if, if we can throw it up there on the screen, I'll flip over to, to Psalm 118. Let me get it here in my Bible. Psalm 118 says, uh, verse 24. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, if you skim up just two verses from there, we're going to make this connection to Matthew 7. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so now here is this idea of a cornerstone being built that's rejected. We just heard about this that's going to come in Matthew 7, right? Skim up a little bit more in Psalm 118, verse 19. What's it say? Open to me the gate of righteousness. So Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament here. He's ending his sermon with language of gate 
and he's going to finish with cornerstone. And why is he doing this? Because what he says is at stake is so important, and the people he's speaking to would have caught this. You and I, we don't necessarily catch this because we didn't grow up maybe in this category or thinking with this kind of a worldview. The people he was speaking to would have known Psalm 118. They would have known the idea of cornerstone and gate. That would have been a category in their mind. And Jesus is working very hard to speak clearly to these people. Let me tell you, if it was me and I would have preached all this, if this, this would have been my kid, I'd have been like, you didn't clean your room? I told you to clean your room. You're done. What's Jesus do? He's meek. He's lowly in heart. He is pleading with them over and over and over again. Hear what I'm telling you. There is life and death at stake. Do you not see the heart that Jesus has towards people like us? This is what Jesus is working for here in Matthew 7. And the reason he's doing this is because he's framed his entire sermon on two approaches to the law and the prophets. Got my Gatorade Zero here. I'm trying to cut out the carbs. So uh, you've got Matthew 7 12. Remember, what does Jesus say? So whatever you would have others do to you, or whatever, let's read this again. Matthew 7 12. So, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is what? The law and the prophets. Jesus has worked his entire sermon comparing what two approaches to the law and the prophets. You see this in Matthew 5, 17, right? He says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So running as a a subtext of Jesus' entire sermon is this. Me or the Pharisees? Who's it going to be? Me or religion? What's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Now, who are the Pharisees? It's very easy. Maybe if you've been in church long enough, you know, uh, you've heard about the Pharisees. Uh, I can tell you a little bit more about Jesus for now, but I want to give you a little sense of the Pharisees. We typically think that the Pharisees were hypocrites and hard-hearted. Do you know why we believe that? Because of Jesus. (laughs) He picks on them all throughout Matthew's gospel. That's why we believe our view of the Pharisees is because it's owing to Jesus. But most people in the first century did not necessarily have a negative view toward the Pharisees. Most people in the first century looked at the Pharisees as these people who were trying to keep them from judgment. They were devoted to the law and the prophets. Pharisees weren't some high and lofty class. That was the Sadducees. They were part of the aristocrats. We'll get to them in a second. The Pharisees were more the middle class mediators between the lower class and the upper class uh, religious elites, the priests, So you think about the Apostle Paul. What was he? A tent maker, right? Pharisees were the same thing. The Pharisees were involved in the synagogue, and they were religious leaders who uh, were looked up to in Jesus' day. And to maybe oversimplify in some ways, the Pharisees were the middle-class conservatives consumed with God and country and keeping the country alive. Why? 
Because 500 years before Jesus, Israel went into exile for disobeying God. And do you know exile was so bad? I will spare you because there are children in this room. It was so bad. Israel said, we never, ever want to go there again. And so hundreds of years passed by. And about 150 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, this class of religious leaders shows up. And they're called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, we went into exile Because we broke God's law, so what we need to do is we need to build a fence around the Torah so that before we could ever break God's law, you have to break these traditions. You see? You see how that works? Because if you break this, you can't break this, therefore you can't go into exile. That was was their, their whole mindset and their whole view. And so these guys were the fundamentalists and the conservatives of the day. They did not want to go back into exile. They were inerrantists. And if I were to just scroll straight through the book of Matthew, we would see in Matthew 6, 2, they were committed to giving. In Matthew 6, 5, they prayed. In Matthew 6, 16, they fasted. In Matthew 23, 3, they preached. In Matthew 23, 5, they memorized scripture. In Matthew 23, 6, they went to after church potlucks. Matthew 23, 15, they crossed sea and dry land. They went on mission trips. Matthew 23, 23, they tithed even the smallest grain. They would go to the grocery store, get some peppers, and cut off a little tenth of it and say, here, let's give this to the priest to to make sure we take care of them. And yes, they would even practice righteousness and holiness from Matthew 23, 27. And this is why Jesus is going to give a nod to them earlier in his sermon when he says, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Think with me then. If Jesus has been comparing himself against the Pharisees this entire sermon, how weird would it be if he now introduced and says, let me tell you, don't be a Greek. Let me tell you, don't be a pagan. Let me tell you, Don't give in to pop culture. That wouldn't make sense. That would be like me getting up here and then at the very end of my sermon, I'm like, hey, now let me tell you about the uh, the beast and the dragon and the two witnesses in Revelation. You're like, what? Bro, I thought we were talking about like two gates. You know? That would be, that would not fit with everything. He would not be introducing a new topic at the very end of his sermon. It was clear to Jesus's audience what Jesus was talking about, that he was comparing himself against the scribes and against the political conservative leaders, against the Pharisees. And you see this, Look, flip over in Matthew, at the very end of Matthew chapter 7, you see this when, you, when Matthew records what people said about Jesus' sermon. Matthew, 20, Matthew 7 verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, not as the people. Essentially, it's, man, we go to synagogue, we ain't never heard this before. This is completely different than what we hear on Sunday mornings at the synagogue. Completely different. So with this in mind, I want us to rethink Matthew 7, 13, and 14. 
what do we have? We, we've been, Lance has been doing a how to study the Bible class. One of the first things you do in how to study the Bible and understand is just look at a passage and stare at it and then see what you see. So let's just observe and look in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, and let's see what we see. There are two gates, verse 13, A, narrow, verse 13b, wide. There are two ways, Jesus says, one way is hard, the other way is easy. There are two crowds, those who enter by the narrow gate, those who enter by the wide gate. And there are two destinations, life and destruction. And here, like all of Jesus' sermon on the mount, he's giving you two ways to live. And as you read these two verses, I want you now to just insert into here, to for clarity's sake, Jesus, where we see narrow gate, and I want you to insert religion, specifically the Pharisees, where we see wide gate. You ready? Enter the kingdom of God by me, Jesus of Nazareth. For religion, especially Phariseeism, is wide. And the way of the Pharisees is easy. That leads to destruction and exile. And those who enter by religion are many. For Jesus of Nazareth is the narrow gate and the way of Jesus is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, it, if you're wondering, maybe you read this and you think, well, does that mean more people are going to be in hell than in heaven? That's missing the point. Jesus isn't stopping his sermon anymore to introduce the quantity count of heaven and hell. He's doing a comparison here, because later on in Matthew, he's going to say the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not a passage about how many people are going to be in heaven and hell. This is a comparison of an approach to life against the Pharisees. And remember, what's going to follow in this text? Just look, let your eyes drop down when you see many are on the way. Look in verse 15, the next little word picture. Beware of the false prophets, plural, okay? There's another sense of many there, plural. Flip the page, at least for my Bible. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I take it then that the many on the wide road are the same many who are going to be false prophets, who are going to prophesy in Jesus' name, who are going to do mighty works in Jesus' name, and they are the religious on the wide road. They are the many who have entered the wide gate. And Jesus says, the way, the gate is wide. And if you remember, I think Josue preached a sermon about the phylacteries that Jesus is going to talk about in Matthew 23. Is a phylactery was like a little rope you tied around your head and had a little box on there. And you put Torah, you put scripture in there to remind you that keeping the scripture right next to your mind. And you know how Jesus describes it of the Pharisees? For they make their phylacteries broad wide. 
This is what he is driving at over and over and over. And this is the same language he's going to use in Matthew 23. Woe to you, conservative religious leaders, for you do all your deeds to be seen by others. You haven't done it from the heart because you've been changed by the mighty works of God. You haven't said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let me rejoice. You said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let me make sure that I don't get spanked. Right? That's what the Pharisees have done. And what are the deeds they do? Giving to the needy, praying, fasting, preaching, memorizing scripture, going to after-church potlucks, mission trips, tithing, increasing their giving, grains to support the pastors, and yes, even practicing righteousness and holiness. And I will tell you this week, when I came, I had never seen this passage this way before, and at this point in my studies this past week, I sat in my chair, and I just leaned back and I said, oh God, make me meek. Oh God, I do not want my identity to be religious. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be conservative. I don't want to be liberal. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness for your sake. Oh God, make me poor in spirit for those are the kingdom of heaven. Is that not what Jesus has said since beginning his sermon? And this is what Jesus is inviting you to this morning. Jesus isn't quoting Robert Frost. Two, dirt, two roads diverged in the woods, and uh, I took the one last, least traveled, and it's made all the, distance, uh, all the difference. Jesus isn't trying to be inspirational here. He's not trying to here. What Jesus does here is actually rather brilliant, if you think about it. Almost every human society in the world, when, it ta- when a, a, a liberal human society in the world, no matter what time in culture in human history, clings to the language of being generous and wideness, okay? Being accepting. And if you think about what Jesus is doing, Jesus is actually taking the Pharisees and saying, you actually are no different than your enemies, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, see, they, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't take it as a literal resurrection. They believed in more of a figurative uh, resurrection from the dead. And they believed, okay, we'll incorporate aspects of Greek culture and philosophy into our life. They were more liberal. And the amazing thing that Jesus does here is he says, you know what? You Pharisees are on the wide road. You're actually on the same road as the rest of the world. Your problem, you're not any better than the, than the Sadducees. You're not any better than the Greeks. The only difference is here, actually, they promote their self-righteousness through humanism. You promote your self-righteousness on account of Yahweh. And you hurt people by doing it. And your way is destruction. You failed to love your neighbor as yourself because you have failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have not been changed from the inside out. And I'll say right now, I, I, I as I have gotten older, um, I have learned to be more careful how I try to understand people. <laughs> I barely understand myself. I, um, I try not to put people in categories as best as I can, and um, I'll tell you one experience that shaped me that way, I, I had done a, an internship under my 
Um, I, maybe I've said this before, but a lot of you folks are new here. Um, I did an internship under uh, my pastor back in Louisiana. Uh, it was just before I graduated high school. I had to do a pastoral internship. And uh, this guy, uh, Skip Dean, was the most evangelistic preacher. Not so much a teacher, but a, an ev- I mean, every Sunday, it was very clear what the gospel is. Every single Sunday. So I'd categor- I would categorize him. I try not to do it. I would say he's more of an evangelist than he is a preacher teacher, okay? So one, one week, I go and I, I meet with, uh, with an older lady of the church. And uh, just doing a pastoral visit, checking in, see how she's doing. And I asked her, I said, what's the gospel? And this woman was at church every single Sunday for decades. Every single Sunday. She heard one of the most evangelistic preachers in northeast Louisiana. And her response to me was something along the lines of, well, I just try to be a good person. I try to do the right things. And hopefully God will be happy with me. And I, I, I was blown away. I was like, you're here every Sunday. Every Sunday you're here. And this is the warning for what Jesus is getting at. He's not saying the warning is to the people who are out doing brunch and baseball and traveling on Sunday mornings. The warning is for the people in this room right now for you. For you. He's talking to you who hear about giving to the needy. He's talking to you who dial in on Tuesday evenings for spiritual growth, for practicing righteousness, for praying, for fasting, for preaching, for memorizing scripture, after church meal potlucks, mission trips, tithing the smallest grain to support even personal holiness, and yet you do not know him, or even better, he does not know you. I've spent a lot of time deconstructing this passage, and, and I, I, I just I, not because of the sake of, oh, look, here, it's something new that I've, I've seen, but because if Jesus is going to come at this four different times, four different images, it must be important. If he's finished his sermon and then he's like, let me paint four pictures for you. Let me borrow language from the Old Testament that you would know. Then obviously what he's getting at here has to be important. This isn't just about improving your life. This is about life and death, heaven or hell. And God forgive American evangelicals who have forgotten the weightiness and the reason for the gospel and just think that this is about a mere path, one path or another. This is about heaven and hell. This is about knowing God and being known by him. And do I understand the ramifications of heaven and hell? I do not. But what I can tell you is I know who is there and he is our treasure that we sung about. And won't you come in, enter into the narrow gate? So what hope do we have where do we find freedom? When I told you these, these verses, Jesus is comparing two gates, wide, narrow, two ways, easy and hard, two crowds, those who enter the narrow, those who enter the wide, and two destinations, life versus destruction. And what's fascinating is 
there is this, uh, this book, since Jesus is talking about law and prophets, there is this book in the Old Testament law, it's called Deuteronomy, okay? And in that book, the greatest Old Testament prophet, Moses, finishes his sermon in Deuteronomy 30 with two ways. And he offers to Israel life or death. And now Jesus is here doing the same thing. And if you remember the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it does not begin with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. How does it begin? Jesus walks up on a mountain and he sits down. And his disciples come to him and he speaks. Don't miss that imagery. Where does Moses address Israel from? A mountain. So he's begun his, ser- he's begun his sermon sitting down on a mountain. It's, in, in early church history, Augustine would get up to preach and he would sit down and everybody else would stand. I guess somebody got, was like, hey, dude, we've got to speed this thing along. You know? So he'd sit, why? Because it was a reflection of Moses. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's beginning saying, I'm accomplishing something Moses couldn't do. And he's ending here with the same call And you see, religion and Pharisees, Jesus says, is the path to experiencing the death Moses promised. But if you enter through me, Jesus says, if you just enter, enter through me, Jesus says, you'll get the life Moses promised, even more so the very life of Jesus himself, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And Jesus says, you'll never go back into exile because of your sin. You might live as exiles in a foreign world, but you'll never go back into exile because of your sin. And because Jesus, unlike Moses, entered into the promised land. And how did he do it? He took death and evil for all those who will come to him by faith. And not only that, but he raised from the dead, becoming the cornerstone that the builders had rejected. And it was beautiful in God's eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is why when we gather today, we rejoice in it. We don't just say, oh, it's Sunday. Yay, it's great. The day the Lord's made. No, God has raised Jesus. That's the day. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And all who are with him will, in Moses-like fashion, be brought into freedom and out of exile, and out of judgment, and out of punishment, and experience the promised land. So the command this morning, two verses, there's a lot in here to pull out. Here's a very simple command. You ready? Enter by Jesus. Well, what's that mean? Enter by Jesus. You'll find out. How's it working out for you right now? On that easy way. Enter by him. Because yes, the path is hard that leads to life. It involves a bloody cross. But notice also what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to him. Jesus says, come to him. And we ought to say, Lord, I want to know you. And I want you to know, I want to be known by you more importantly. And Jesus says this in Matthew, and we'll close here. Matthew 11, 29 through 30. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
uh, for my yoke is easy. Take my yoke, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for your son, whom you have given freely, and that we might just enter by faith. And we trust that when we enter, you'll change us. You'll grab us by the hand, this lowly, meek heart that you are, and you will deal with us in ways that are for our good. We have seen who you are in your word, and we pray that you continue to press your truth deep on us, that we might know you and be known by you, oh God. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.